Hey there, my name is Vosh. I live stream on YouTube and Twitch, and sometimes I even upload the good bits. This is Previously Live. So how's your day going? Uh, it's pretty good. Um, just, uh, relaxing. Uh, hey, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Um, Steph... We're still we're still not getting your audio. Uh, you're muted on your end. Oh, sorry about that. There I'm unmuted is. now. All right. Yeah. Excellent. Good. So my day is not as important here. Let's uh, <laughs> get right into it. If you guys are all right with that. Another time then. Yes, of course. <laughs> so, uh, Stefan, my general idea for this was, you know, you know, it's one general topic about capitalism, but we've got to bifurcate into source of human wealth and what exploitation is my thinking was that we'll kind of tackle those separately um and um for the most part you know uh like the only things we really have here is you know um you know no insulting keep it like you know civil whatnot i i've seen both of you guys before i don't think it's gonna be an issue and then just uh you know basically you know kind of you know don't interrupt each other be kind of fair on time so you know um, if you got a lot of long points, you know, let the other person make a lot of stuff. But, you know, for the most part, I think you two got, you know, are going to be fine with that. So my plan is to largely stay back, guide this very loosely, and I'll only really step in if things get heated. Does that work for you? Yeah, fine with me. Works for me. All right. So, uh, you know, the first topic here uh, that we have is the source of human wealth. Uh, Vosh, would you like to tell us where you think human wealth comes from? Sure. So it's a really vague question, which I like. Um, there's a lot of openness to be found there. What do we mean by wealth? Are we talking like material price? In which case there are myriad market factors that play into it. You know, incredibly complicated. God knows depression, recession or boom, what something might be worth. Um, I think when I tend to think of human wealth, I tend to think of a more generalized, you know, accumulation of all of the industry, all the ingenuity, all of the material possessions, the labor saving devices, the artwork that a individual company, country, civilization has accumulated. And um, through all of these different, you know, variants of wealth, there is one underlying cause, which is, um, inex you know, inescapable and inextricable, and it is labor. Uh, human labor is what drives wealth. Even if you stumble into a diamond mine or find oil bubbling to the surface of a field, you know, those things are valuable on their own, of course, but the process of mining, the process of refining, of advertising and selling the product, of consuming, of building machines to use these things, of deriving a use value from these objects, all of this stems from labor. And it is for that reason, I believe that when we credit the wealth of a civilization, of a country, of a firm, of a person, we should elevate those whose labor has brought that to pass. Um, in some civilizations, you know, this has been slaves, um, more so than any other group. And in, you know, our civilization today, that is the common worker for the most part, the people who labor and toil to provide services or to produce goods, to mine, to work, to strive, to produce art. These are the people who I believe build wealth. Okay, and the same question to you, Stefan. All right, so uh, the source of human wealth, you kind of got to answer two questions. And 
you can say, well, sure, human beings are necessary for the creation of wealth. Yeah, okay. I mean, that sort of doesn't add a huge amount to the equation, in my humble opinion. But what I would say is we actually have a very good explanation as to where wealth comes from. So the first thing that you need to do is you need to explain why there was so little wealth throughout almost all of human history. And then why you sort of look at that line of wealth, right? Uh, almost human, all of human history, people were surviving on virtually nothing. Starvation was rampant, uh, even in civilized areas uh, like the Roman Empire. You could have feast or famine within, you know, five miles of each other. So why were we so poor throughout almost all of human history? And then you get this massive, I mean, to call it a, a exponential is an insult to exponent, exponentiality, massive increase in wealth since the... 18th century, first in agriculture and then in industrial production. So what changed? What was the difference? That's the first thing that needs to be sort of explained and understood. And the second thing is that we also need to explain that when you get more free markets, when you get the allocation of uh, or the earning of goods and services and the control of goods and services by those who are best able to maximize their use, why is it that we get this pretty wild income disparity? And it's true in general that the rising tide lifts all boats, but boy, it seems to shoot up some pretty high and some much slower. So the answer to that is uh, pre pretty easy to understand if you are familiar with you know, Austrian economics, that kind of stuff, right? So the first thing is that there are some people, and I sort of hate to put it in this way, but they're magic. They are magicians of productivity and nobody knows exactly why it's like saying why is a particular singer or a particular baseball player i mean why are they so good why are they so popular it's a mix of skill and charisma and hard work and and all of that and resisting temptation but some people are just magic when it comes to the creation of wealth. Now, if you want a wealthy society and you have free markets, which is the only way to get a wealthy society, then what happens is those people tend to end up accumulating more and more resources. So if you can get twice the crops out of a particular piece of land, you're able to bid a lot more to own that land. And because of that, you get massive increases in agricultural productivity. And the, uh, there's a very well-known, somewhat well-known equation for this. It's called the uh, Price's Law, and it's common throughout human beings. It's common throughout the animal kingdom. Uh, it's common in just about every meritocracy that you will look at. And it goes a little something like this. The in a meritocracy, like where you can earn and profit and compete, the square root of the number of people involved in an endeavor produce half the value. So if you have a company of 10,000 people, 100 people of those, 10,000 people produce half the value, and of those 100 people, 10 produce half the value. So in other words, you have 10,000 people, and 10 of those 10,000 people produce fully one quarter of the entire value. Now, why is this the case? I don't know. Nobody knows, but it doesn't really matter because we, it's a reality we have to deal with. So in a free market, those who have this magic ability to just create, you know, Steve Jobs-like, the opposite of... <laughs> Uh, Elizabeth Holmes like they have this incredible ability to create wealth through passion through creativity through organizational genius uh, through converting uh, uh, to a, a model T assembly line as Henry Ford did for all of his other considerable faults so there's these magic productivity people and in a free market they tend to accumulate the most resources and uh, they massively increase the wealth 
in society and that creates a lot of resentment and then people say aha those people only have money because they've stolen from you and then they run to the government to steal it back and everything kind of collapses venezuelan style and that explains why when these people were inhibited from exercising their productive genius in the free market throughout most of human history we remain poor you can see when the free market began to occur in the 18th century particularly in england and the netherlands you can see when the free market began to operate in the realm of land that you had more and more productive landowners taking over land the bourgeoisie of the landowners so to speak they elbowed aside a lot of the aristocrats and you got a massive increase in food like sometimes 10 to 20 times the food productivity as occurred in the early middle ages was occurring in the 18th century we're talking winter crops crop rotation turnips like you name it it was just incredible what people were able to do with the productivity of the land because they were able to compete they were and and land was sorted according to who was the most productive in a market mechanism so that is the source of human wealth is letting the free market determine who gets generally to bid the most on the resources and that's the people who can make the most use out of those resources the most productive use out of those resources and if you allow that process to occur then more and more people get wealthier and wealthier in society as a whole and the last point I wanted to make is it's a pretty temporary situation, right? Because we uh, we don't like, and you know, I'm sure Vosh doesn't like, and I don't like it either, this idea of this sort of hereditary economic monopoly. But the reality is that uh, the people who tend to be uh, very wealthy, uh, it really, really doesn't last at all. So uh, if you have a family wealth, about 60% of the time that wealth is gone within one generation. It's been blown, it's been frittered, you know, this rags to riches to rags story that's very common, or they say shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. By the second generation, fully 90% of the money is uh, gone. So these geniuses, they appear like, like comets, or I guess more like uh, meteors in the night sky. They flash, they burn bright, they burn out, and other people come along to take their place. And there's this constant churn of, of classes and wealth, but in general, it's a rather bumpy, but significantly linear upward bump of wealth and that's the genius of the free market and that's how it serves humanity so beautifully if left to operate uh, with the enforcement of property rights and in opposition to the initiation of force all right so um just a quick note here um chat i forgot the text so you guys are uh, you won't be able to talk of course but you can uh type uh you know discuss this as it's going on in the debate chat if you want to invite your friends, the invite code is just Blue Politics. We've got another 100 minutes, and I'm going to mostly step back now. Uh, Vosh, if you want to just go ahead and start with your um, yeah, response. I'm gonna I'm gonna need some time for this. So this is a pretty standard like Randian great man explanation, which and the great man theory I should say is is widely discredited in uh, sociological. Okay, listen, I, mean, I hate to interrupt right at the beginning here. I, I Let's hate do it too. Each other a favor. Hang on, I'll be I'll just be a sec. Let's just do each other a favor. Let's not characterize each other's arguments. That's such a waste of time, and it's so boring. Well, this is a reductionist and blah, 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 and it's a Randy and this. And just, let's just both go back and forth with the actual content of the debate the, rather than wasting everyone's time characterizing what we think about and how standard it is and where it comes from. Let's just deal with the points, okay? Because The point short. of being able to identify what type of argument a person is making is so you can tie their arguments to academic arguments that have taken place in the past. If we, if we reduce all discussion down 
to he said, she said, or he said, he said in our case, um, then we can pull essentially anything out of our ass that we like. What this is, essentially, is great man theory. And I don't find this to be a particularly effective descriptor of, well, frankly, anything. Um, so we, we begin with your description of the um, why wealth suddenly ballooned upwards um, during the uh, uh, 18th century and has since then our wealth has, has you know, increased tremendously since that point. Um, and I would argue that the reason for this is not because the, the, the government suddenly took their hands off the reins and allowed these, these Ubermensch to walk society and do as they would, which drags the entire productivity of the you know nation upwards. I would argue it's because of the Industrial Revolution, which is, um, uh, I think, far more descriptive because we saw equiv uh, equivalent increases in productivity um, uh, 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 pretty much across the board um, in countries that had high levels of economic freedom, in countries that are despotic and totalitarian, the effects of the Industrial Revolution seem to near ubiquitously increase the wealth and productivity of a society, no matter what policies they have um, uh, uh, concerning individual property rights. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I believe that capitalism hasn't had an impact on the development of wealth in our societies. I think it has. I think it's um, and just absolutely a, a head and shoulders improvement above uh, feudalism or above um, mercantile capitalism. But the idea that um, capitalism's effectiveness for whatever percentage it is responsible for the increase of human wealth is because of these 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 great men, these these people who. Um, who, who stride head and shoulders above the, the, the peasants who contribute more. Um, I just, I just, I don't see that. Um, in none of the research I've engaged in, none of the analysis uh, I have seen done of firms or of countries, nothing I have seen has shown me that the entirety of the productivity we see from any level of society is done by a small elite core of do-gooders who preside above it. It is, in fact, uh, the tireless work of everyone who participates in that system, uh, it is through that that we are able to reap the benefits um, of an industrialized society. After all, um, a, the process of invention, you know, to create, say, for example, a new factory machine, this is work. It is labor. The person who has done this is a worker. Um, to operate that machine is likewise work. Whether you believe there is some, you know, differential in the relative levels of productivity between those who create and those who simply operate machines, that certainly does exist. But I don't believe there is so great a difference between these people that you can find strong explanatory variables uh, uh, as to why um, our general level of civilizational wealth is increased just because of uh, the existence of a few highly privileged individuals. In fact, your argument that these people are shooting stars that emerge quickly and then burn out quickly is an argument that these people were never that great to begin with, that instead a uh, incredibly complicated system of complexities and circumstances conspired to bring them to a position of relevance, and then, you know, eventually history does to them what it does to everyone. Uh, which is it brings them down. Um, altogether, I just um, I, I do feel as though this the, your explanatory uh, uh, sense for this the 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 great man. I I just it feels very um, disheartening or, or or like cucked. 
alchemy, I guess would be the best word I have for it. Because what it is essentially telling most people is that in spite of their um, incredible level of individual talent, productivity, whatever, if you're not at the top of society, you just weren't cut out to make it. It's a, it's a system that justifies uh, the placement of one man above the other. And that, to me, is the absolute opposite of freedom. And that's why I, uh, I stick to a more materialist analysis of civilizational wealth. Wow, I uh, I would really like it if we could get a debate going, but it looks like uh, I'm going to bring facts, reason, and evidence to the table, and you're going to say you don't like the outcome, and you've never heard that argument before. Go for so, it, friend. Okay, well, then what I guess I'll ask you, if we can get a bit more back and forth going, um, why do you think, let's say, Brad Pitt, and, and by the way, it's not a great man theory, because uh, that's very, very sexist of you. I mean, there are lots of women who contributed <laughs> enormously to the um, to the economy as well, and of course, you pointed out Ayn Rand, a great novelist and philosopher, but um, why do you think, if, if everyone's equal and it's just the amount of labor, I mean, I've made a movie, but I've made a number of movies. May I make a brief correction? Now. I don't think Hang everyone on. is equal. Uh, I've made a bunch of movies by now. And why do you think that the leading man, like the star or the leading woman, whoever it's going to be, let's sort of Brad Pitt or whatever, why do you think Brad Pitt gets paid more than the sound guy on a movie set? So to clarify, I don't think everyone's equal. There are obviously individual differences between people. Some people are far more productive than others. I just don't think that the uh, uh, the reason why our society experiences such high levels of income and social inequality is because those on top are these, you describe them as magical people. I think magic is as bad an explanatory you know, gesture we're going to get for any social phenomena. But the reason why Brad Pitt is paid more is because he can negotiate for more. In a free market, you know, he's a front-runner star, people know him, his um, addition to a movie will bring in more customers, uh, his relative market value allows him okay, to Okay, okay, okay. So, so, sorry to interrupt. So that's interesting. So you've given me two explanations there, which seem somewhat contradictory. And it's really, really interesting. This is kind of, I think, of the core of the issue. So you're saying that Brad Pitt makes more, like he makes like, what, $10 million a film or something like that. He makes more than the sound guy simply because he negotiates better. In other words, if the sound guy had Brad Pitt's agents, the sound guy would also be making $10 million a movie? Not because he negotiates because the better. the audience prefers Brad Pitt, he's more singular, he has more of a monopoly on Brad Pittness, so to speak, than the sound guy who's kind of interchangeable? I will agree that Brad Pitt does have a monopoly on Brad Pitt, but I don't think it's because he negotiates better. It's not the skill of negotiation that matters here. It's because he is in no, a better but you did position say to negotiation negotiate. Is why he's paid more, right? Yes, he's in a better position to negotiate, or his agent is in a better position to negotiate because past circumstances have led Brad Pitt to be more marketable than some random sound guy. I mean, the sound guy is not even in the movie. Well, he's in the movie in the sound. Well, well right? yeah, yes, he works he to the production, there, the but he's not in the film. No, but why Why do you... I mean, past circumstances doesn't explain anything. Um, past circumstances so explains everything, why do you everything, think that Brad Stephane. Pitt gets paid, I don't know, like a hundred times more than the sound guy? The, the, the same reason any popular person can be paid money to speak at a university, because more people are interested in seeing them. Ah, okay, good. So it's not the labor that determines his income. I mean, there's many, many people who work harder, so to speak, and invest more labor in the film than Brad Pitt does, right? He kind of bungees in for the shoot, and a lot of times movies have been in preparation for a year or two before Brad Pitt might come in for a month or two. So there's people who put out far more work into the movie but paid far less 
Uh, and so this idea that labor is what's driving value is falsified by the movie star example because many people work much harder who get paid you, a small fraction you just of what switched Brad your Pitt argument. does for less work. You said that Brad Pitt is being paid more because his labor is worth more. And then you just switched to saying that was my argument. I don't think his labor determines how much he's paid. I think his market value determines what he's paid. I agree. Brad Pitt probably works as hard, probably quite a bit less hard than your average stagehand. I mean, that's tough work. I've been on sets before. It's, it looks very difficult. Um, you know, certainly for the sound guy, it's pretty heavy equipment they got to carry. Brad Pitt has a lot of lively comforts I'm sure they don't get to enjoy. I don't think that labor is an explanatory value for one's wage or the price of their, you know, services. I think an explanatory value for what it gets produced in society, for what is worthwhile in society. Well, it's because people like to watch Brad Pitt. And so it's the customers themselves who determine the value of the contributions. In other words, if you and I, let's say we're just hanging out and we say, hey, let's go a movie, let's go see a movie, right? And let's say we're just complete manic sound aficionados. We're just crazy about the sound guy, right? And there are people who are like this. There are people who will go and see a movie just because some guy wrote the score and he's like, oh, that guy's amazing. But most people are like, Brad Pitt is really cool. He's a good actor. He's handsome, he's got abs for days and all that. So they'll go and see the movie because Brad Pitt's in it. And so Brad Pitt is a good investment. Like it's not that he costs $10 million. He makes the movie like $50 million because he sells $50 million worth of tickets that wouldn't be sold if he wasn't in the movie. So Brad Pitt is paid a hundred or a thousand times more than the sound guy because people will go and see the movie for Brad Pitt, but they don't really care about the sound guy. Now, if there was no sound guy, the sound would be bad and the movie wouldn't work, but it's a lot easier to get another sound guy than another Brad Pitt because there's only one. So it is the end customers who determine the value. And I don't know how you end up with, well, there's no such thing as disproportionate or wildly disproportionate economic value when Brad Pitt is paid a thousand or 10,000 times more uh, than say an extra. Well, that seems like quite a, uh, a spike in income and that's all determined by the customer. It's not determined by the negotiation. It's not determined by the bosses. It's not determined by the director or the studio. It's fundamentally determined by the customers and how much they want to pay Brad Pitt. So a few things. For one, uh, I never said that a person's like price or, or, or wealth or income or earning is determined by their... Um, is determined by the labor that they produce. That's determined by a wide variety of market factors, which you have just, you know, explained. I do want to correct you on one thing, though. Um, it's not actually the customers that lead to his wage. It is the fact that he and his agent are willing to negotiate for a wage that they believe that the studio would be willing to pay in light of what the customers would bring for additional revenue to the movie. There are a wide variety of complicated economic factors that go into this, but none of them are that Brad Pitt is a magical Superman who strides atop all the other production staff in the movie set and is singly responsible for all of the value in that movie. It could entirely well be that somebody else who was born in circumstances similar to Brad Pitt could have ended up being the Brad Pitt, or, you know, with some different name, of course, but a similar level of popularity. And it has nothing to do with any uh, uh, genetic or circumstantial or magical component of their birth. It's just a product of circumstances that has placed Brad Pitt in a position of prominence that allows him to negotiate for his wages. But when it comes to what builds civilizational wealth, what truly builds society and drives it forward, it's not popular people who get popular because they have a good agent or because they have a good PR team or because they got lucky. It's the hard work of millions or billions of human beings. 
Well, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. People have been working hard for about 150,000 years since we first hived off from the apes. So people have been working very hard, uh, gruel gruelingly hard, gruesomely hard. I mean, if you look at ancient skeletons, a lot of them are like bowed down by the amount of work. Their joints are shot because they had to run all that. I mean, people worked like crazy throughout most of human history, but something changed. Like 200, give or take, 200 years ago, give or take, something changed to the point where we got this 20, 30, 40, 50 times increase in human wealth. And I'm, it's not just because people decided to work 50 times harder. Human beings were working about as hard as they humanly could throughout most of human history, and something changed. Now, I would argue what changed was morality, was morality. What changed was there was a move for a variety of both intellectual and economic and political and historical reasons. There was a move towards a lowering of barriers for trade, a respect for property rights and contract, and a general diminishment in the random violence in society, whether you put that down to the fact that there were executions of sociopathic prisoners for <laughs> hundreds of years, or whether you put that down to the Black Death, or whether you put that down to, as some people do, and I think it's a very good theory, that parenting improved. And when you stopped brutalizing your children as much, they grew up to be more empathetic and less prone to aggression and violence. But something changed to the point where property rights were more respected, barriers to entries fell, and uh, violence also diminished within society. And those three things, right, barriers to entries falling and property rights being respected and contra contracts being enforced and uh, a diminishment of violence in society, that allows for the intellectual meritocracy to begin to harness nature's scarce resources and energies and become massively productive. And that is really the source of wealth. It's not just the fact that people move their arms. They've been doing that throughout all of human history. The reason wealth productivity went up during the 18th century was because of the Industrial Revolution, because people invented machines, built factories, built conveyor lines, automated and processed the labor, you know, uh, refinement, built steam engines and coal plants and it, you know, revitalized global trade. There are a number of factors, material. But why did they do all of that? Well, I mean, the ancient Romans knew about the steam engine. Uh, the ancient Romans. The knew ancient about Romans really could not have kickstarted the industrial revolution. To create the industrial revolution, but they didn't. Why? Because they all owned slaves. It took the shattering of serfdom. It took the shattering of the ancient wait, practice. We had of the industrial slavery. revolution in America uh, in, when they owned slaves. To, wait, sorry? wait. Americans owned slaves when the industrial revolution took place in America. You can simultaneously own slaves and develop an industrial revolution. They couldn't have de developed an industrial revolution back during the Roman times. The technology just wasn't there. I agree oh, there no, are ideological no, components. No, no, that's not true. No, this looks like, I mean, I don't mean to pull credentials here because it's all nonsense. I got a whole history of Rome presentation, graduate degree in history. Oh, no, no. I'm well aware of what you speak on Rome. Rome. They could have done it, but they didn't want to invent labor-saving devices because they had invested all of their capital into slaves. So when you invest your capital into slaves, you don't want want to create labor-saving devices because it diminishes the value of your slave. Each slave cost about the equivalent of a medium-expensive car in, in the modern West. And so there were very strong political and, and economic reasons to do with the immorality of slave ownership that had to do with why. Now, there was slaves, of course, in America, and the North industrialized faster, got wealthier faster because they didn't have slaves, and it was the British, uh, and uh, in, in particular the British, the British Empire, that worked feverishly 
uh, in the late uh, 18th, 19th century to end slavery, not just in England, not just uh, uh, in the British Empire, but around the world, worked very, very hard and, and like, would grab the slave ships and free the slaves and, and lock up the slave owners and, and worked very, very hard. It was largely a Christian mission, of course, but it worked. they worked very, very hard to end slavery. So the fact that America had slavery, while well, America inherited the Industrial Revolution to a large degree from England, which was largely serf and slave-free by the time it started, and uh, the industrialized North uh, had a far greater economic progress than the slave-owning South, so I don't see how the example of America does anything but reinforce the thesis. Okay, so a number of points here. For one, there have been plenty of labor-saving devices that were invented over the time when slavery was commonplace in civilizations across the world. The printing press, the cotton gin, numerous inventions which were meant to make agriculture easier, a field that slaves almost exclusively um, were, were presided over, of course, you know, uh, back when agriculture was, you know, the industry of the day, you know, medieval Europe. There is, there is, there is certainly a relationship between the development of the Industrial Revolution and the existence of slaves. But the idea that uh, that Rome Wait, could sorry, have had the existence or the diminishment of slavery. Uh, well, both, I suppose, the the diminishment of because I agree there is a there is a proportional relationship between the industrialization of society and the reduction of reliance on slave labor. But the idea that Rome could have just decided to do one, and then it took us two thousand years to decide actually what if machines are no, better than enslaving said, humans? Well, 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 decided to do it. I said that they had slaves, which you just admitted. They had slaves, and they the had labor-saving devices. Was essential for the development of uh, industrialization. Civilizations so have had decision arbitrarily. It's based upon the foundational morals and economics of the ancient world. Civilizations have had slaves, and they've had labor-saving devices for as long as both have existed. When the industrial revolution took place, the material wealth and the productivity of our societies increased massively. But it wasn't because everyone just decided that it was moral to start doing so. It was because of the incredible ingenuity of inventors and the hard work of the people who manned those factories that civilizations pulled themselves into the industrial era. I reject this assertion that it was a, a moral, um, uh, you know, zeitgeist or a moral paradigm shift that led to the overwhelming increase in the productivity of human beings. All right, so l let it just be noticed that Bosch has said that he just rejects it. Okay, good. That's, well, I reject your rejection, and <laughs> we've completely solved the problem. You just have to say, I reject, I reject. Okay, well, so... Well, I provided a counter-argument. If you'd like to provide a no, counter to my counter... you just said that there were machines in the ancient world. Well, of course there were. I mean, uh, you could have carried water, or you could have had an aqueduct. You could have uh, dragged things along through a forest, or you could have built a road. Of course there was labor-saving devices in the ancient world, so what? I mean, the fact is there still was not this massive liftoff and takeoff of human wealth. And for that, you require... The Industrial Revolution. Efficiency, the idea that it was the laborers within the factory that produced the wealth when laborers in the fields before, the slave laborers in the fields were working even harder than the factory workers were in the Industrial Revolution and for, of course, less pay because they virtually got no pay. They got room and board and some rudimentary health care, and that's about it. So the idea that it was human labor that somehow drove it is to say, well, I guess they just worked 10 times harder than the slaves did, and they didn't. No, no, no it's nothing to do it with It was that. not a sudden decision to start. Starts, hang on, I'll finish in All a right. sec. I'll finish in a sec. When labor starts to cost money, rather than you just buy a slave and then you buy and burn that slave until they, you know, I guess you don't even want a pension. You just burn them out till they, till they die. But when labor starts to cost money, then the first thing you want to do is start investing in labor-saving devices. And that harnesses and extends and expands the power 
of the laborer, the economic efficiency of the laborer is vastly enhanced by being attached to a factory machine that does a huge amount more work for him. Now, and so when, you, when labor costs money, you start saving money by introducing labor-saving devices. That frees up labor to do other work that is more productive and adds to the value of society as a whole. So again, to clarify, labor-saving devices have been invented as quickly as the people of their time could for as long as humans have been around, including the time when we owned slaves. While it is, there is undeniably a relationship between the economic value of a labor-saving device uh, relative to the availability of free labor, that doesn't negate the fact that humans have tried to increase the efficiency of their society for as long as has been possible. And I take issue with this, this spurious straw man you keep assigning, where you describe the Industrial Revolution as simply workers choosing to work harder. It was workers who are... I never said workers. Wait, 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 wait. Hold, well, hold on, man. Stefan. I never said workers let me, let me finish my argument. You, you said... You, I even used it all. you just said that my argument was that workers must have started to work 10 times harder to account for the increase in wealth production during the Industrial no, Revolution. No, that was, that was a mocking of your argument. That wasn't my argument. You'll ah, to, okay. Well, then, to clarify, it has nothing to do with workers suddenly choosing to work harder and everything to do with workers... Said, well, I, may I please, Stefan, I, I am addressing my own argument and clarifying my position. So to clarify, well, then why are you saying it's what I said then? I think you mischaracterized my position. Well, okay, so just, here's, here's what we well, do. well, let me, I, I would like do. to finish the if point you, before we, we, we gallivant and complain said, about it. Like, here's my suggestion. Here's how we use our economically productive tools, right? I don't know if you can see me or not. You got a pen, you got a piece of paper, right? So what you do here, what you do is, if I use a phrase that you want to take issue with, which is obviously perfectly fine, that's the point of a debate, you can jot down the phrase because I'm telling you, man, relying on your memory is not working because- I trust the people who are watching to said. remember you as you said it. And if my chat would like to rise up and say that he did indeed characterize my argument in that way, you are all free to. But until that point, I would like to say, that it has nothing to do with workers just deciding to work harder and everything to do with some workers who are inventors uh, or, or, or politicians, which is in itself a form of work, um, who developed the labor-saving devices of the Industrial Revolution, which then allowed the workers, working as always, to increase the productivity of our society. It has nothing to do with people choosing to work harder. It has nothing to do with a moral paradigm shift. It has everything to do with a change in the material circumstances of our society and how it allows our workers to increase their productive efficiency. We continue to see this today. The existence of the internet has revolutionized the material efficiency of our society. This has nothing to do with a moral paradigm shift. It's simply new technology allowing for us to create and distribute in new and inventive ways. Always, of course, this is being done by people who work. And it is for that reason I credit them for the bountiful society we now find ourselves within. Okay, so you've accepted that the end of slavery helped make workers more productive but you don't consider it a moral paradigm shift for slavery to have ended. So I guess you don't view it as an improvement in human morality for slavery to have ended? I'm not quite sure I follow. I don't think people abandoned slavery for uh, uh, machinery as a more efficient form of economic production for moral reasons. I think they did it for material reasons because you can make more money from a factory than you ever could from a plantation. Um, of course, this is somewhat simplified. You know, the actual particularities of economics are incredibly complicated. But generally speaking, the Industrial Revolution de-emphasized the necessity of slavery. I don't think that slavery is a good thing. I'm glad it's gone. But I don't think we made that transition for moral reasons. Why don't you think the transition was made for moral reasons? 
because in every society, I mean, sorry, and just, sorry, sorry to ask a question and just interrupt. I get that there's pecuniary advantage in in getting rid of slavery. I get that it's more efficient and all of that. But uh, to say that there, I mean, are you saying there were no moral considerations in the uh, abolitionistic movement? Oh, in the abolitionist, abolitionist movement, certainly. But they weren't doing it for economic reasons. The people who built the factories weren't doing it because they knew they would be replacing slaves and that would be freeing the slaves. The people who built factories wanted to make money. The abolitionists weren't doing uh, abolitionist work for the benefit of their economy. They were doing it for moral reasons. They, of course, had a moral incentive. But factory workers, or sorry, factory owners, the, the inventors who built these machines and, and, and industry lines, I don't think they did it because they knew their machines would allow for the emancipation of slaves. Okay, now I'm really confused because you said there was no moral considerations in the ending of slavery. And now you're saying that the abolitionists who largely drove the ending of slavery had significant or foundational moral goals and moral concerns. So I'm really lost now in, in Vosland, I'm afraid. No, I apologize. <laughs> to, to, to clarify, to there are the pl plenty of moral reasons to the end of slavery. I don't think the development of the machines necessary to create the Industrial Revolution were done for moral reasons. I thought they were done for material reasons. Now, that well, may have led exactly indirectly. Said, yeah, that's exactly what I said. I mean, we're, we're you're, you're completely agreeing with my point, which is that you get rid of slavery, and then the labor costs mean that you want to invest in labor-saving devices, which drives productivity of labor far beyond anything slavery could have ever achieved. So, yeah, you got the moral goal, you get rid of slavery, and after slavery is gotten rid of, and of course, uh, now there was there were some ugly things that occurred as well. It's easy to look at history and say it's, it's kind of ugly at times based on sort of modern considerations, which I accept and understand, but there was, of course, a lot of... Um, uh, you know, the enclosure movement, kicking people off ancestral lands for both good and bad and in different reasons and so on. There was some negative stuff in it for sure. But I think that we can say with and I think we both agree that there were moral considerations that had to exist prior to the excess labor that drove uh, and the costly excess labor that drove the Industrial Revolution, you had to get rid of slavery in order to build wealth. And that, to me, is one of the foundational moral aspects of the market and the foundation of wealth. And this dichotomy between, well, the, the, um, the factory owners didn't build their factories in order to end slavery. Well, yeah, of course, you'd have to end slavery before there's even an incentive to build a factory. But the reality is, of course, that you don't require, this is the wonderful thing about the free market, you don't require moral considerations in order for the actions of everyone involved in the free market to benefit mankind. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it would be great if everyone woke up as you do, as I do, as a lot of these listeners do. They woke up in the morning and thought, gosh, how can I best serve the world today? How can I best make the world a better place for people in harm and people in suffering and, and all of that? It would be great if people woke up every day and thought that way. Uh, some do, a lot don't. And the good news, of course, is that in a sort of communist system in a, a tyrannical system, the people who want to profit, they do so uh, on mountains and rivers of blood, whereas in a free market economy, the people who want to profit can't force you to buy their goods and have to appeal in some way. All right, we are, we are, we are so off you. the original topic now. I would like to return and perhaps conclude this, this, this uh, tangent on the Industrial Revolution. So to be perfectly clear, 
Um, the Industrial Revolution took place because material, not moral circumstances, allowed for a massive increase in the productivity of civilization. This change in our productivity did change the economics of slavery, which upended many of the slave-oriented businesses um, that existed alongside and even after the Industrial Revolution, because, of course, the Industrial Revolution took place before the abolition of slavery in many places. What's more, slavery continues to exist to this day, across the world, we saw other forms of exploitative labor come alongside the Industrial Revolution, such as child labor, such as workers being stacked in tenements, spotting out eight or nine babies because they knew that at 12 they would have to send them off to the factories because it was the only way to afford their company-owned tenancy. Um, the idea that the Industrial Revolution was part of some moral surge towards the free market and individualism and propertarianism is ridiculous. Because the Industrial Revolution had comparable effects in societies that haven't that hadn't seen the free market touch them for a century afterwards. The Industrial Revolution had the exact same effect on Soviet Russia as uh, few and far between as the rights for workers were there at the time. They nonetheless saw a comparable increase in the productivity of our society because it has nothing to do, and I need to make this perfectly clear, nothing to do with the free market, with a moral decision to uh, uh, evolve into, uh, you know, laissez-faire economics, and everything to do with material circumstances of society changing. Labor-saving devices have been produced for as long as humans have been ingenious enough to produce them. Slaves have existed since the beginning of humanity up until now. These are parallel but not intersecting courses of material and moral considerances, or, or sorry, considerations, and merging the two of them uh, uh, errantly, uh, uh, um, carelessly only serves to dilute an understanding of the actual driving forces of history. All right, well, that's a long description without any particular causality. Now, of course, the effects of the Industrial Revolution had, had impacts on non-free market or less laissez-faire societies, of course. Of course, because things that get invented in the free market, shockingly, can be transferred. There's not this magical force field between borders that all the things that are invented and created, the, the knowledge of better farming and winter crops like turnips, the, the steam engine, can magically pass from one country to another, even if the second country is not particularly free. I mean, believe it or not, you can get internet in North Korea, even though North Korea is a, a post-communist society and a, the largest open-air slave pen in, in human history. So yes, of course, uh, you get uh, wonderful things invented in the free market economies, and they can themselves transfer to non-free market economies. The idea that, that, that all uh, labor-saving productions there. have been produced in free market societies that other non-free market I'm societies sorry, have just I missed the beginning of that. I was uh, talking. Uh, can you go ahead? I'd be happy to. The idea that all uh, labor-saving devices and all uh, economic productivity is produced by free market societies and then aped and copied by non-free market when societies. Did I say all? When did is, I say all? I'm sorry, most. All without is exception. Entirely. No I mean, come on, don't be. Is entirely ahistorical. Sometimes it goes both ways. But when I say free markets generate goods, which again then cross into non-free market societies, I didn't say all goods. And every, you find one exception, and the whole thesis falls to the ground. Come on. I mean, no, actually, I was trying to address the central tenet of your argument, which is the spurious and ahistorical 
spurious and ahistorical idea that all of the uh, developments in wealth production in non-free market societies, which invalidate your argument that these are fundamentally a derivative of the free market, came from osmosis between borders with free market societies. The truth of the matter is, it's entirely possible for the wealth of a society to be built up tremendously by a totalitarian society. China right now, which is by no means communist, but I also wouldn't fairly describe as a free market, is ballooning in economic and social productivity in spite of the fact that me, uh, much of the, uh, the the ability to to trade as a, a firm within China is limited by the CCP's sort of central tenets of, 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 you know, economic behavior. In spite of that, they grow tremendously. The truth of the matter is, and sometimes this hurts for folks to learn, but freedom and productivity aren't necessarily one-one ratios with each other. We have to fight tirelessly to ensure both of them. But to assume that they're both intricately tied is to assume all productive societies are free and all un productive societies are unfree. And that is not true. There are many free societies throughout history that have at you know the same time been materially deprived, and there are many ludicrously productive societies that have been tyrannical. So um, if I could just jump in real quick, um, just to try to pull this together, um, I'm going to try to you know summarize you guys' arguments as best I can in a single sentence. And just tell me first if I'm wrong, but I think this might help us move closer to the uh, the topic here. Uh, Vosh, you believe that the source of human wealth is primarily labor, and Stefan, you believe it's primarily innovation. Is that correct? No, I believe that the source of human wealth is uh, property rights, self-ownership, and a freedom from violence. Uh, that, that the moral imperatives to not use force to get what you want, to respect self-ownership, to respect personhood, to respect property and contracts, a universal validity to promises and property and the sanctity of the human body, uh, that is the foundation of wealth. And it results from a moral commitment to universal moral values, to ethical values that are universal, and to um, uh, opposing the initiation of the use of force, and uh, I think Vosh's argument is something like a mysterious ahistorical asteroid hit the Earth and we got wealth. Excuse me. I may be paraphrasing a little bit. <laughs> Very like slightly, Stefan. Uh, clean your ears out, my friend. I've said pretty clearly wealth is created by labor. Whether that labor be the factory worker or the inventor that produces the machine the worker is on, this has been the case in every society throughout human history. Um, after all, inventors are themselves laborers. But yeah, no, there's just no, um, there's, there's absolutely no deterministic social or, or historical force that means that property rights and a respect for, for violence lead to the, the, or I'm sorry, a prevention of violence leads to the material wealth of our society. Singapore, South Korea under its fascist regime, the Soviet Union back when it was around, uh, China today, uh, Saudi Arabia, these are societies that have enjoyed massive economic and productive booms with, let's say, uh, tenuous um, relationships to the pr principles of free markets and, you know, human rights. Um, okay, that's great. Let's, let's, let's deal with those. I agree, those it countries. is great. Nuance no, 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 is very that's, that's, special to me. That's a great me. argument. Now we have something we can, we can discuss. Okay. So South Korea. If you compare and contrast South Korea, which is a relatively free market system, at least compared to North Korea, and you see that South Korea's wealth is 20 to 30 times per capita North Korea's wealth, where we can see the effects of relative free markets to a communist system. Of course, remember North Korea, not referred to these days, of course, was founded specifically as a communist system. And so if you look at the difference between South and North Korea, you have here a twin study, a twins study, the most robust 
form of comparing situations and environments known to mankind because you have a genetically virtually identical population <laughs> you have one system that's relative free market relative uh, property rights relative rule of law relative contract enforcement you have another system that's communist and you can see the outcome with regards to saudi arabia saudi arabia is wealthy as an effect of the wealth of the west because saudi arabia stole the uh, uh, the uh, the oil producing companies, the oil producing machinery, and the oil producing technology from the West, and this is why Saudi Arabia's wealth followed its theft uh, after the Second World War of Western technology, Western companies, and Western expertise. After the West had been tragically weakened by the horrors of the Second World War, a lot of the Arab states jumped in and nationalized and stole basically all of the Western stuff. And so, boy, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, <laughs> but it's like calling a thief wealthy because he's stealing from people. That's not really the same as actually having a free market yourself. And the wealth that Saudi Arabia is able to gather, it gathers uh, because the wealth, uh, the, the wealth of the West is enough to, to purchase stuff that the Arabs, to a large degree, not completely uh, stole from the West. So I don't think that uh, this really goes against which, the uh, argument. Which example uh, of yours would you like, which examples of, uh, of yours would you like demolished first? Would you prefer North and South Korea or Saudi Arabia? I feel that that's a bit of a rhetorical question. It is. I'll go, I'll do both. So, <clears throat> South Korea had heavily protectionist policies up until the 1980s. The idea that the free market was what led to their sudden economic boom following the Korean War is ludicrous. What's more, they had a fascist government for a large portion of that time, you know, US-backed, installed as an alternative to what happened to North Korea. The circumstances that have befallen North Korea are incredibly complicated, but the idea that the differential between North and South Korea's relative levels of success is that one of them has had free markets and one of them hasn't is ridiculous. There was such an enormous, uh, enormous multiplexity of issues, uh, a historical, social, economic, that divide these two countries and have continued to divide these two countries for the past 70 years, which makes comparisons between the two of them on a, on a, such a singular, simple do you basis. Do actual as... arguments or do you just say ridiculous and it's complex? I so mean, responding on. to an argument with, is that an argument rhetorically, is not the same as rebutting my argument. I'll ask you, let me finish. That's with the case of North and South Korea. With Saudi Arabia, I don't know what you mean by they stole their wealth. They, I mean, they traded for it in the free market. Um, they were able to no, leverage. No, no, no. They nationalized Western countries, uh, sorry, they nationalized Western technology and Western companies and Western capital equipment uh, after the Second World War. So they were able they, to, they not using the, not using uh, uh, the uh, free market, develop a tremendous amount of civilizational wealth that currently places them, uh, you know, in relative levels of, of, of like per capita income, enormously above what you would expect of a society of their, you know, um, de uh, development level. And they did it not using the free market policies that you claim are the central basis for all social and uh, 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 material development. So there are a lot of ways that a country can become super duper wealthy and very, very materially productive. Well, and a, a man can get wealthy by kidnapping your children. That doesn't yeah. mean that he's using free market uh, or it's, it's a moral thing to do or they're using and he, his, his I never said this was moral. We're just talking about what builds wealth from your children. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I never said it was Saudi moral. Arabia's We're just talking about country. what builds wealth. You're the one who's making the claim that wealth is built fundamentally or at least the huge spike in wealth since the Industrial Revolution has been built by the existence of liberal economics in the free market. And I'm saying that's just ahistorical. It doesn't correlate to the developments of dozens of countries um, across the world. It's not the explanatory okay, variable. So when I say so, let's say let's just for instance. So when I say that 
free markets require a respect for property rights, you somehow bring in Saudi Arabia <laughs> with its massive theft of Western technology. Which got really wealthy, yes. Companies, you somehow bring that into the free market and its respect for property rights. No, I said they don't have a free market. And in spite of that, they have grown very civilizationally wealthy. They're a counter argument to your point. No, they're not. Okay, so you just admitted that they are not, um, you know, advocates of the free market, so to speak. And yet, if, if I could Google right now, you know, um, Saudi Arabia economic stats, I think we would find that in spite of that deficiency, they have uh, propelled themselves to a pretty impressive position. And I would argue that is, of course, because of the tireless work of their incredibly exploited worker base, um, who is, you know, essentially, you know, at the behest of a totalitarian theocracy, but they are nonetheless workers, and they are the ones that produce the wealth. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's where the wealth comes from. All right. Let's see here. Um, sorry, just uh, let's. Uh, we we've gone far afield from my original, which is good. This is a rambling kind of thing. Uh, and uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, they depend on oil, as the country has the second largest proven petroleum reserves, the largest exporter of petroleum in the world. Did they develop all of that technology and knowledge and expertise themselves, do you think, uh, Vosh, or did they get it from somewhere else? I don't see how that's in any way relevant to my claim that you don't need free market economics to build a high level of civilizational wealth. Uh, stealing well, is, after I'll all, a way civilizations to, build wealth. To, I guess I'll have to connect the dots for you then. I mean, how do you, th <laughs> oh, wait, wait, how do you think, you into the cave how do you think, right. how do you think England got on, to be me, such a global civilization? You know, they stole this, wealth from countries all over the place. So... If you if you don't invent something yourself, but you're dependent upon the free market to invent it for you, then you kind of are dependent on the free market for the source of your wealth. That would only be the case Arabia if only the free not, market on, could build oil point, tech. And then I'll, I'll be quiet. Let me finish my point. So if Saudi Arabia didn't develop all of this uh, oil extraction technology, the petroleum engineering, all of the wonderful machinery and complexity and, and all of that... If they instead stole it from free market developed economies, then they, are, they kind of are dependent on the free market for the source of their wealth. So let me clarify two things. For one, I addressed this argument earlier, where you cannot simply hand wave the enormous material success of societies that do not have free markets by saying that they just got what they had from other countries. For two, stealing is a valid way for, not moral, mind you, but a valid way for civilizations to accrue wealth. The British Empire did this for like a millennia. Many of the civilizations that we, you know, uh, laud today, uh, yours, uh, maybe, I don't, Canada did some stuff, I'm pretty sure, America's certainly, we stole enormous amounts of wealth from all over the world, and that contributed to our civilizational wealth. Again, I'm not making moral claims here, only factual ones. And finally, the, the fact that Saudi Arabia nationalized the industries within its borders, and that is how they seized control of, so to speak, the means of production, albeit for the royal family, is not an argument that they could have developed those facilities themselves. In every case, this is a legitimate example of, without the impetus of the free market, a society managing to develop enormous material wealth. Also, the idea that just because they nationalized a few oil fields 45 years ago, therefore means that all the wealth they've enjoyed since then is exclusively because of the, the refineries that they only were, would have been able to steal and couldn't have just built themselves, I think is fairly ridiculous. I don't think it's a good explanatory, you know, uh, a variable for why they're so wealthy. So if I might just ask like a question here, again, I, I don't I want to be mostly out of this, but it, it seems like a, a better way to phrase this would be whether or not a free market is better at 
this kind of innovation, Fosh, do you think it's just oh, no, hang as on, hang good? on. Oh, okay. Sorry, Go just ahead. before we put a bookmark on that, because I do want to get back to this communist argument that, 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 you know, we all know this one, like there's a fixed pie in the world. And if one country ends up with more slices of pie, it's because it stole slices of pie from other countries. Right. And uh, of course, there is theft. And I, I am a, a, a voluntarist. I'm an anarchist. I despise and dislike the existence of the state in any way, shape or form as a predatory mechanism, which violates property and personhood on a regular basis, both domestically and overseas, in horrifying, complex and multimillennial manners. But come on, the wealth of the West was not primarily stolen. Because, and we know this because the wealth in the West is far more than the entire GDP. What on earth is that background noise? The, the, well, the wealth of the West is far greater than the entire GDP of the world 200 years ago. So there's no conceivable way that the West could have stolen uh, all of that wealth. And of course, the reality is that as far as roaming bands of gangs, stealing things from each other, that's been a constant for 150,000 years of human history. So the idea, again, we go back to this thing at the beginning where human income was flat, human wealth was flat for almost all of human history, and then you get this incredible spike over the last 200 years. That's not the result of people just being better at stealing. That is the result of the free market because theft has been a constant factor in human society throughout all of human history. Okay. So for one, I that background noise, just by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's kind of just, oh, I apologize. I was typing down a, a few of the points to make sure I didn't forget any. I'm taking sure, your, sure. I'm taking your advice. Uh, I'm a millennial. I can't write with my hand. Okay. So there are a couple things here. I have no idea what communism has to do with believing there's one pie and different civilizations have different slices of the pie. It's pretty well known economically and politically that it is not a zero sum game that different parties can benefit. I don't know why you're arguing as though I said that stealing is the is an explanatory factor for civilizational wealth. I'm only saying it is a way that civilizations have built upon their wealth. And your idea that um, this, the great civilizations of the West today didn't build uh, a tremendous amount of their wealth off of theft is is frankly ridiculous. Colonialism fueled um, the American the English, the French, the Dutch, the Portuguese, and the Spanish empires for an incredibly long length of time. I mean, if we could go over, I don't have these stats in front of me right now, but if we could go over them, they are, the, the amount of wealth that they were able to pull in, raw materials, labor exploitation from, from their colonies was unbelievable. And critiquing colonialism is by no means a communist exclusive venture. Um, but yeah, no, just stealing is a thing civilizations do. Again, it's a counter argument to your point that the free market and the magic of individual success is the explanatory factor for the huge increase in civilizational wealth. Um, also, I, I can't, I just, I can't help but notice, it seems like every time we, 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 I, I get you on something, you jump to a different topic. Like before we were on like the Saudi Arabia, North and South Korea, and now you jump to the idea that like communists are saying the wealth only got their money from stealing, which I never said. So just, it's no, you, you, very no, spurious. No, 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 this is not, this is not me jumping around, brother, come on. Don't be ridiculous. It's not me jumping around at all. You brought up this argument that the West in part gained its wealth through colonialism, and I'm just pushing back. This is not true. That is a so factually correct colonialism, statement. Colonialism, like most government programs, it was a government program, colonialism was brutal on the working classes of Europe. I mean, you probably know these stories as well as I do, that there used to be these... Uh, my brother actually had one of these when we were kids. It was a, a stein with a glass bottom. And you say, well, why on earth would you want a beer stein with a glass bottom? Well, the reason being, of course, that the, the British government was so hungry for sailors to go around preying on the planet and, and, and attacking other countries 
that they would drop a coin into a guy's beer at the bar, and if he took a drink from it, he was considered to have accepted the king's coin, and he could then be kidnapped, imp- impressed, they called it, and, and sold, well, not sold, but, but kidnapped and put into the navy against his will for an indefinite period of time. Of course, the same thing occurred uh, with just about every empire from the Roman Empire backwards and, and forwards. So colonialism was a map coloring exercise for the ruling classes. It did not make the countries wealthier at all. It benefited certain particular individuals who were very high up. It's like the Federal Reserve of its time, you know, like this money printing machine of monstrosity benefits a few people at the top at the expense of the working class. But the idea that the society as a whole became wealthier during colonial times is that, well, you can see particular people became richer, those who got the kind of anti-free trade monopolies and charters from the government. Yeah, they got kind of rich, and that was a violation of free trade and property and all of that. But the average person, uh, taxpayers lost money on colonialism. The taxes would have been far lower without colonialism, and they lost their lives, their freedoms, their, their futures, uh, everything with uh, colonialism. It was a, a monstrous uh, behavior uh, on the part of the state. And so the idea that this suddenly generated a massive amount of wealth, and the ar- argument against that, of course, is that if colonialism was so profitable, then why on earth did all the European powers, after they had exhausted themselves to near decrepitude after the First and Second World War, why was the first thing they did was give up all their colonies? All right. I mean, if, so, if, it's so, if it's so wonderfully productive and profitable to have colonies, why didn't they just use that to replenish their coffers? Because they lost money on those things. So I, I would expect somebody who wrote a book called The Art of the Argument to understand what an unsound argument is. So first of all, um, that colonialism was hard on European people has literally nothing to do with any point that I was making. I'm sure colonialism was difficult for European people in a number of ways. It went on for centuries. I'm sure it introduced a lot of strange economic pressures that uh, that that were quite hard in the peasantry of, you know, the countries that were doing the colonializing. Second of all, it was by no means just a state's endeavor. Most colonialism took place under a system called mercantile capitalism, which means trade uh, firms would work alongside the crown um, to uh, colonial, uh, you know, colonial colonize uh, different countries. This is where we get stuff like the East India Trading Company. This is where we get mm-hmm. stuff like the, you know, all of the uh, the, the trade, yeah, like I everything that happened that in India. What, what I just said. Right, exactly. So so this wasn't a state project. This was in large part pre, pre-capitalism corporations working alongside state mandates to a uh, towards a specific um, collective economic end. Third of oh, all... so it was run by the state, but it wasn't a government program. No, okay. it wasn't run yeah. by the state. <laughs> the state... Whoa, whoa, whoa. My friend, your ears. Get the eggs out of them. I said that they were worked alongside the state, not that it was a state project. Nobody works alongside the state. Come on. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. state is a monopoly of force. It's the one with all the guns and cannons and bullets. I mean, nobody works alongside if you, the state. If you would like to go over, no, no, it's okay. I can't, I can't do a full, these, these I can't do a full companies. history lesson right now, but if you want to go over it, you can find that there were actually very wealthy people who of their own independent violation chose to start firms to work alongside the crown without any guns being pressed to their head. It's called mercantile capitalism. It's not just a state project. This is highly ahistorical. What's more, your argument that colonialism didn't benefit society at large, it built uh, just benefited the wealthy that's the case for all societies every civilization that has ever existed with the possible exception of some incredibly small anarchist communes has had a wildly disproportionate amount of wealth and and uh, uh, um, material productivity directed towards the ruling class of that society that was the case in rome that was the case in greece that was the case in medieval europe and that is the case in large part today the fact that it uh, disproportionately benefits the wealthy doesn't mean it doesn't also benefit society again england uh, portugal spain Wait, are you these countries that the guy who the guy who st- why are you so 
allergic to letting me finish a point. On a ship and then not given any oranges or lemons. Who developed scurvy had this is not related. I just acknowledge that individual peasants was somehow benefiting from colonialism. I know that isn't an argument that I made. My friend, the eggs, you have to listen, okay? I'm not saying that every individual peasant benefited from colonialism. I am saying the civilization at large did. This is factually correct if you take a look at all of the spices, material, wealth, and labor that these um, colonizers were able to extract from the colonized civilizations. They built. Whoa, 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 whoa. please, my friend, you made four points. I give you four points back. So, this idea that it's disproportionate in how it's distributed, irrelevant to the broader argument. And last, but not least. The idea that like, well, if colonialism was so profitable, why didn't they just keep doing it? There are a number of historical and social arguments as to why individual colonies, most of them fought or, or revolted against their colonial oppressors. Nowadays, we have an international environment that discourages colonialism, thank goodness. But uh, in large part, the reason why England didn't just, you know, stay in charge of India is because they were growing so feisty that it wouldn't have been worth the effort. So there you go. Colonialism was beneficial to the civilizations that colonized in general. That's why they did it after all. It was hard in the individual peasants of that civilization, but that's the case for everything that has ever taken place in these um, civilizations. That it was disproportionately beneficial to the wealthy is irrelevant. And the fact that it ended isn't an argument against its <laughs> efficacy during the time when it was functioning. So real quick, oh um, you're taking Stephane. the side of the ruling class to own the free market guy. By guess, saying listen, colonialism was effective, hang on, hang on. You, you are you that say, weak you for a gotcha? Back the fuck off the mic. Come you on, had your say, all right? Real quick, Stefan. I guess I I'm going to have to be uh, the one who Stephane? stands up for the working class here. Because what? the fact that a couple of people really well connected to the guys with all the guns, the state, the fact that the oligarchs in the mercantilist, capitalist model, the fact that they were able to bribe the state to socialize the costs of their monopoly enforcement of the extraction of resources from foreign countries, which is what mercantilism is. The fact that they were able to socialize the cost of that by having the government steal people's lives, steal people's labor, and enforce people into the uh, Navy and into the Army and so on. The fact that they were able to do that is not beneficial to society as a whole. There is no such thing, of course, as society as a whole. I mean, this is just a concept, right? So the fact that the what? vast majority of, of, of people in the colonial powers paid more taxes, was subject to more arbitrary kidnappings and being forced to be uh, the, the, the Army and Navy slaves of the mercantilist powers that be, the idea that this is somehow beneficial to society as a whole is is, is monstrous. So, uh, so I, I should clarify, and we can we can put a lid on this. The working classes is not beneficial to we, society. We can put a, a we can put a lid on you, this. I so I want to this, yeah, this I want to clarify oligarchical mercantilist. I want to I want to clarify this really quickly. So I've said this several times. I'm not making any moral statements, only factual statements. And the argument is uh, what builds civilizational wealth, over which colonialism objectively did. That's why they did it. So this weird, like, virtue signally, like, two-minute rant about how I dare I speak over the poor, plighted European commoner, I'm not saying any of this was moral. It's colonialism. I, do you think I'm defending colonialism? What, what are you, are you listening to this discussion? No, I'm saying it contributed to the accumulation of material wealth. This is what Marx would have called, by the way, primitive accumulation. You can Google that next time you'd like to come more prepared to a discussion of this caliber. But uh, yeah, in the future, please listen to my arguments before responding to them. Mod, uh, you've been interrupted so many times. I apologize for the indignities that have been forced upon you. What would you like to move to next? No, so uh, I do want you guys each to have, thank you for that. I do want you guys to have a uh, 
I thought we were on this 40 more, and we got 40 more minutes, uh, and I, I do want to get in exploitation. So if you guys could just put in, like, you know, closing thoughts before we move on. Um, uh, Stefan, if you want to go ahead. Do you mean closing thoughts on the past discussion or? Um... <laughs> on, yeah, human wealth. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, human wealth can be transferred at the point of a gun. For sure. I mean, uh, I was talking about this. I'm doing a series uh, for my subscribers, which is um, uh, the Communist Manifesto for Children. Uh, she and I are going through the Communist Manifesto and, and talking about this. And without a doubt, uh, the farmer who grows the crops, you know, warlords can ride over the hill and can grab his stuff and, and you know, hit him with the hilt of their sword and, and steal his bread and his food and his beer and maybe his wife and all that. For sure, uh, but that does not generate wealth. What that does is it encourages everyone to exist at a bare subsistence level because all the excess that you have to put a huge amount of work into creating and holding on to, all of that excess can be snatched away from you at any time. Now, this, of course, occurs in more primitive societies or more warlord-based societies with just you know some guy coming over the hill and hitting you on the head and taking your stuff. So the transfer of wealth, so to speak, uh, does not add, like the forced transfer of wealth does not add to the wealth of society. But this is why societies remain so poor, is there was no point. If, if you could not hold on to your property, if you could not have property rights enforced, if you could not have contracts enforced, if you could not have future reliability for maintaining your control over the excess goods that you'd produce, you just don't produce any excess goods. It just doesn't work. I mean, this is why communist uh, economies and socialist economies are so unproductive, because stuff just gets taken fairly arbitrarily by the state or by the local whoever, right? And so you have to have property rights in order to put in the labor to have some at least reasonable confidence that you can hold on to the excess value that you have produced, whatever it is. And so this argument that uh, somehow using force to transfer wealth adds to the wealth of society. Oh, yeah. I mean, the guy who knocks you over the head and takes your bread, he's got a loaf of bread and he didn't have to even uh, grow the food or, or he didn't have to grow the crops. He didn't have to cook it. He didn't have to do any of them to store it. And so, yeah, there has been a transfer of wealth, but that is a net reduction because um, not only has no wealth been created when you transfer a loaf of bread from a farmer to a warlord, but the effort that the warlord has put into pursuing and getting that bread is not something that is being used to produce any other good and service. And so you have a net reduction. Plus, in, in the long term, what happens is people, as I said, don't want to produce any excess goods unless they have some reasonable assurance that they can hold on to them. So the idea that the initiation of force and theft and so on adds to the wealth in society, either at an individual level or at some large mercantilist, colonialist level, uh, is just uh, uh, false. It's just false. So that's, yeah, that's my last thought. Um, uh, I guess uh, we can turn this over to Vosh. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Vosh. Yeah, uh, I'm a market socialist. Uh, I actually defend the efficacy of not necessarily free uh, markets, but at the very least of market economies. Um, and the reason why I'm a market socialist is because I recognize that the driving force of history from a material perspective is and always has been the tireless efforts of the nameless millions and billions of human beings who have lived and died on the fields or in the factories. These are the people who bring us forward, and to them we should always be grateful. We are them, after all. I am working right now, and so is Stefan, of course, albeit our jobs are different than most folks, but this is nonetheless labor. Labor builds labor produces, labor provides. And while I do agree, and I want to be clear about this, you know, in the in the interest of fairness, that there are elements of liberal um, capitalism 
that have facilitated a, a, an increase in our general level of economic efficiency. Even Marx contended this, that um, capitalism was superior materially and morally even to feudalism. Um, I, I do not believe that is in and of itself a, a great enough explanatory variable to account for the entirety of human history. Um, so yeah, um, in, in conclusion, I suppose, while it is undeniable that uh, uh, market economies and um, and and uh, property rights have facilitated the development of um, further economic efficiencies, even those exist only through the tireless labor of the worker, as it has been since the beginning of time. And it is for that reason that I credit them. And I um, and I am I am proud to say that every economic and political position that I advocate for and support, all of them are derived from the advocacy for this group of people, who I believe we owe everything to. Okay. Can I just uh, mention one thing here? I know we've got this whole exploitation thing. I think it's been somewhat embedded into what it is that we have been talking about. And I'm just, I'll put a request in, of course, we can we can obviously negotiate all of this, though I will be using Brad Pitt's agent to negotiate huh. this next part. But um, uh, so I think the exploitation part has largely been dealt with, uh, although we can certainly do it again or in a different direction. But I am curious about what uh, I've seen from Vosh uh, about this idea that I think it's companies with over 500 employees should have uh, the government take the companies and distribute the ownership of the company to the employees and so on. Like the ideal economic situation to me is very simple, like non-aggression, non-initiation of the use of force, respect for property rights and everything else is fine. But I would like to know more about this approach to dealing with um, larger companies in, in Vosh's perspective. Uh, let's start with you. I think that, um, if, so a lot of users here aren't familiar with you guys' views. I think it would be good if we started with just how you both guys view exploitation and we can jump right into that. I'd be happy to lead from exploitation into that because the two concepts sure. are pretty inextricably linked. Yeah. Do you go want ahead. to go ahead? Uh, yeah, sure. So exploitation can mean a million different things. God, I mean, you can exploit your friends for like, you know, uh, for 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 pizza and free car rides. That's but in a broad you know civilizational sense, in a, in a broader social sense, I think exploitation exists any time there is a power differential between one agent and another, and the more powerful agent uses that differential to extract favorable circumstances, conditions, or interactions from that person. The most obvious example of this would, of course, be the exploitation of the common worker, because a worker has much less bargaining power than a firm does, or a boss, or a business owner, or whatever. Um, a worker, while they can nominally negotiate for their wages, most of the time just has to accept what companies are providing, whereas companies have all of the bargaining power because they don't have the same level of individual vulnerability that a regular, average, everyday, middle class or poor person has. I would consider that to be a very severe form of exploitation. There's also a tremendous amount of labor theft that goes on in this country, more in fact than every other type of theft combined, including burglaries, robberies. This is stuff like unpaid overtime. These are very uh, serious and very uh, pernicious elements of overt and illegal exploitation that we have sort of normalized in our society through our uh, deferential, uh, almost uh, cuck-like reverence of the, um, of the autocratic business owner. Uh, Vosh, have you ever been, like, have you been a business owner? Um, Unless you would consider what I am presently doing owning a business, because I pay a few folks? No, not really. 
So you do have employees, right? I mean, I mean, not in a legal sense, because I just pay them for like editing work, for example, they would be more contractors. But apart from that, no, the real rigors of business owning, I am not familiar with, personally. And do you feel like you have massive power and control over the people who are contractors for you? Uh, some of them, yes. I make a surprising amount of money from doing what I do. I know some of the people who work for me, who edit for me, aren't in positions of privilege as I am. And I know that the terms in which I negotiate how much I pay somebody to edit my videos are ones over which I have complete control. I can say 50 bucks to edit a video that's two hours. I can say 500 bucks. But that's, I mean, that's me to say. I'm in a much stronger position to bargain than they are. And why is that, do you think? Well, because I have much more money, power, and they're the ones coming to me to fulfill a subsistence need of theirs, which is wealth. And do you believe that that power, while it may not corrupt you because you have an admirable knowledge of these power relations, do you believe that many people are corrupted by that power? Do you think that's kind of innate to the mechanics of the system? Uh, yes, I think it's innate to the mechanics of the system. I don't know if it reflects necessarily on the moral character of the people who do the exploitation. I think it's a necessary component of a capitalist economy. Okay, so a difference in power tends to corrupt the person who has the most power, right? I believe so, generally speaking, yeah. And that's why we can't have a state. Um, I mean, I'm an anarchist, so... Good, okay, so we agree on that, That because um, I, I thought I'd heard you make the argument that the government should uh, seize the means of production from large companies and distribute them to the owners, uh, sorry, to, to the workers. So I thought that you required a state for that. I maybe I had mis misheard that argument, but uh, that might yeah, be so the for sure, where, wherever one person has more authority uh, and more power, uh, there, there can be corruption that occurs. But of course, there is no possibility of a greater power differential than that between the state and the citizen. The state oh, oh, and the I'm... citizen is the greatest power differential that there is. And the monopoly on the use of force that characterizes the state, this is not for you, this is just for the audience as a oh, whole. Oh, no, sure, because be I completely agree. Go off, King. I completely agree. I'm, I'm very anti-state, though I believe there are transitory systems between ours and a stateless society that should be implemented. But I'm, in principle, agreeing with everything you say. Okay. So you have power uh, with regards to how much you pay people, but to some degree you are, of course, also at the mercy whether they do a good job, whether they're reliable, whether they do it on time, or whether they end up trying to charge you more and withhold your materials and so on. I have gone from, you know, growing up uh, the dirt poor to I was, uh, I co-founded a software company, grew it to 30 or 40 people, and most of them worked for me because it was a software company and I was the chief technology officer. And you certainly do have some authority. And I, you know, it's funny because I remember being very sensitive to this, having been an employee myself for so many years. It's a funny thing. I'll just tell you this by the by. I, I was very aware that when I asked an employee to come into my office, that the employee would be nervous. And I actually remember sitting there brainstorming with a friend of mine, how can I invite an employee into my office so that the employee doesn't feel nervous that they're in trouble or they're fired or something like that. And, and I actually just came up with, just for those who ever want to use it, this was the residual product of my brainstorming. My answer was, or the solution was, uh, hey, so-and-so, can I just borrow you for a second? And that gave them some sense of ease. I don't know why, but it you kind of worked that way. But uh, I was, of course, also very much at the mercy of my employees because if they decided to quit if they got better jobs uh, they walked out with a huge amount of knowledge you know we had a code base that ran into the massive amounts of lines of code and interoperability with various database systems and other systems and so on and it took at least six months to train someone to be effective and efficient within that code base and so there was authority in a sense on 
both sides and uh, they were always being poached for better jobs and I always had to sort of make sure they were happy and so on. So there is a kind of equality on both sides in terms of the vulnerability uh, to to each uh, each person's uncoupling from the economic relationship, so to speak. There are undeniably workers who are in a privileged position to negotiate their salaries and their relative terms of employment, but I think for most workers, the reality is much grimmer. For most people, they know they are utterly dispensable cogs in a machine that is not of their design or control, and that if they choose to leave, hell, if they die, um, that they will be replaced uh, uh, almost immediately afterwards, whereas the process of finding a new job, a job of comparable pay at that, um, might be much more difficult or even impossible for them. Um, I, I do applaud any efforts made to ameliorate the inherent power differential between the worker and the owner. Um, but it is ultimately, I think, an, an, an inevitability that, um, that this interaction produces exploitation. And I know, by the way, that you agree with this, at least principally, because you share my belief that the relationship between parent and child, a very socially normalized uh, hierarchical relationship, um, can also very often be uh, toxic or exploitative or abusive. It's, I mean, it's very normalized. Everyone's got a parent, or at least I suppose most people do. But we can agree, you know, with some reflection like, hey, it is a little bit weird that two people get absolute, utter authoritarian control over the, you know, uh, uh, how a, a baby is raised for 18 years. And that's kind of how I feel about businesses, too. You know, it's gotten very normalized, but you take a step back and it's like, wow, 98 or whatever percent of Americans work for authoritarian firms over which they have no control and they are utterly dependent on these systems for survival. And that's... Is that really true? I mean, I'm not... I'm not saying this because I don't think it's true. Um, and maybe I just move in more entrepreneurial circles. Is it really 98%? Oh, I, I'm, I was being, I think, a little hyperbolic. I don't know. I would imagine the vast majority of American workers are in that position. I would imagine it's more than 90%, but I don't have that exact statistic. Um, okay. I, I think it's lower than that as a whole. But, but that's sort of neither, uh, neither here nor there. I suppose, yeah. So the point, I think, to make here is why... Are the workers so replaceable? Because you said, as you said, and I'm not going to catch you out here, but as you said, there are the, the workers who are in a stronger position. You said privileged. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that terminology. But there are workers who are in a stronger position to negotiate, and there are workers who are in a less strong position to negotiate. And what do you think the difference is between the two workers? Like what, what, is, it, is it genetics? Is it, is it environment? Is it choice? Is it like what is it that makes that difference? Mostly the material conditions of the worker and the firm they work for. Um, obviously, there's degrees of individual exceptionalism. Some people are truly phenomenal at their work. But I think for a lot of them, it's just like, uh, you know, tech jobs have a tendency. You said you worked for a tech startup or you were, I'm sorry, you owned a tech startup. Um, that, uh, that in those cases, you know, usually people have very highly individualized, specialized knowledge that eventually becomes core to the development of whatever product or service it is that firm is providing. In those cases, I think the workers tend to have a fairly high level of, of control over their employment. But most people, whether they're intelligent or unintelligent, good or bad, black or white, male or female, most people's labor, and I think this is natural, is replaceable. Um, just by, by way of how an industrialized economy functions. I don't think these people should be relegated to the back pale of society, you know, where they have no power over their own lives. I think that these people are the backbone of our society. And that's why, and I'll end on this point, that's why I find the, the 
Atlas Shrugged terminology, the title of the book itself, so funny. Because in the context of the book, it's about these these great leaders, you know, these, you know, unchained by, by state regulation, they rise and take society with them. But, I mean, in a much more immediate sense, all the workers need to do is stand up. You're right. As powerful as firms are, they are utterly powerless. The entire capital class is reduced to tears the moment the workers decide to stand up, to strike, or to do any kind of unionization work. Um, and I think we need to move in that direction. That power differential needs to be addressed. It needs to be corrected. Well, and listen, I have no moral objections. In fact, I, I quite support unions as long as they're voluntary and as long as they don't use uh, force to get their way. I have, you know, I mean, if a hundred workers want to walk out of a factory, the boss is in a huge amount of trouble and might bring him to the table that he wouldn't get to. Other, and of course, people can uh, ask for too much. The, the, the bosses can ask for too much profit, and that's at the expense of the workers. The workers can ask for too much pay, and that's at the expense of their survivability as a firm, because they can't you know, if you if you give workers double their salaries, you have to probably increase the price of your goods by 40 to 50 percent. And that means you can't compete. So it's a complex negotiation. But here's the thing, I think, where you and I are going to differ. And, and I think this will be a very productive conversation, because when I look at the difference between workers who are interchangeable and workers who are really, really valuable, you can look at that. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Vosh, but I think you would look at that and say, that's a systemic problem that we need to deal with in some external way. Whereas what I would say, this is what I said to my employees. I said, listen, I would love to pay you more. I would love to pay you more, but it's not up to me. It's up to the customer. If you can provide value to the customer over and above what you're providing now, I would love to pay you. I am just, I am the flow through mechanism by which you get paid by the customer. And if it's any consolation, I said, I'm also the flow through mechanism by which I get paid by the customer. And I also work for you because I would deal with a lot of the, uh, the shit that they didn't want to deal with, with bad customers or problems with the specs and all. I would have to go in and negotiate all of that. So if you have a worker, let's say, who doesn't feel that he or she has much negotiating room, this is what I would say to that person. I would say, look, you have a choice. You can wait for some magic leftist horse rider to come in and, and save you. Or what you can do is you can really work to improve the value that you add to the company. I don't know what that means because it could be different for everyone. Like, why was I able to start a software company even though my graduate work was in the history of philosophy? Well, because from the age of 11 or 12, I took a tiny inheritance and bought a cheap computer. I learned how to program. I would go in on Saturdays all day to the computer lab in school when the computers had a grand total of 2K between them, I think, of memory. And I learned how to program. And that just turned out to be super valuable for um, founding the software company and coding in, in that professional environment. And so I would say, and I know it sounds kind of ridiculous, like this learn to code thing has become kind of a ridiculous thing. But if you take the time and effort to educate yourself, to gain skills. And this doesn't have to be night school. It can be just looking at stuff on the internet. It can be listening to, don't listen to music in the car, maybe listen to uh, how business works or something like that. So there's a lot that you can do to add value and, and be in a stronger negotiating position without complaining about the system. And that's so the first thing. And the second thing that I would say, and I, again, we probably agree on this, although that may not be the case, 
But uh, dear God, government schools are terrible because they put out people after 12 years of education with almost no economically valuable skills at all. And it's even worse in university sometimes because you come out with negative economic value. Not only have you not learned anything, but you've grown to hate the market system that you kind of need to survive in to pay off your stupid overhyped predatory student loans boy there's an example of exploitation is student loans for crappy oh, I mean, education that harms yeah, your brain so uh, so just to finish up and i'll i'll let you of course have your chew on this but um i think if we had a system or we had a free market educational system it would, it would actually instill people with really valuable skills so they could get out there and they could negotiate hard for what it is that they want we don't even teach negotiation in government schools. We don't have, teach how to read a balance sheet. We don't teach about uh, the value of cash flow. We don't teach about how to serve customers. We don't teach about how to start a company. We don't teach any of the things. And I don't think it's an accident because I think a lot of the powers that be, these high-level corporate capitalists, I think that they're kind of happy that the schools are dumbing down people who could outcompete them. Like, why is it that my company, I was up competing with Microsoft, I was out there competing with IBM, these big giant companies, why is it I was able to compete with them? I was willing to work harder, I was hopefully willing to work smarter and willing to take risks that the other bigger companies weren't. I didn't learn any of that in school. I learned that from economics, I learned that from business books. And so if we had a system where young people were taught actual business skills and they were taught how to negotiate and how to provide value that would be i mean fantastic because we're back to the statement about where does wealth come from wealth comes from efficiency it comes from knowledge it comes from finding faster and better ways to serve uh, the infinite well of human needs right now we have a system that dumbs people down that throws them out into the marketplace crippled intellectually from terrible anti-educational practices in the state and i really really would focus on people maybe we'll get the magic uh, classless and stateless society 100 or 200 years down the road but in the meantime please please up your skills uh, up your capacity or willingness to take risk learn extra stuff go that extra mile and you'll find that when you go into that negotiating table you'll have a lot more weight behind you and much a much better chance of getting what you deserve yeah okay so i mean i i agree with the sentiment of a lot of this um one of the issues i mean american education is crap actually i think that's a bit of a meme i think that education is crap almost everywhere in the world and the reason for that i think i would blame capitalism for this um at least here using america as an example so i'm familiar um textbooks are manufactured um by private companies that engage in rent-seeking behavior by petitioning to local school boards to you know get them their products on the table as opposed to other textbooks that might cover a subject more comprehensively um we have i mean betsy davos right now like is our is our education secretary um there is an attitude um for those who preside over our education system which are in many case state actors but also in many case private actors or sometimes the line between them gets blurred who are conspiring to turn school into a machine for stupid workers to ju just turn them into drone cucks that will just well it comes off the prussian model right good, well, I, good factory workers dumb soldiers and ugh, yeah sorry, no no i mean i agree i think so this is where i depart from you in that i think the opposite approach should be taken while i do agree that marketable skills should be taught in schools i mean this is a sense like we need this to, for our society to continue we need marketable skills i also think that we shouldn't you know shame or or uh discourage people um, who decide to pursue uh, less marketable skills. I think the fact that university is accessible to a lot of people is a beautiful thing. If you want to learn about underwater basket weaving, I mean, maybe it doesn't make someone somewhere out there, you know, a ton of money, but 
I'm sure that somewhere out there, the world is being enriched artistically through the existence of baskets that were, you know, wo woven underwater. You could probably make a good YouTube channel about that. Honestly. I think they're actually pronounced... Sorry, <laughs> No, I, no, and in all likelihood, yes. Though who knows what underwater speaking text they'll have when 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 this gets run out. But um, but I think this is where I mean this is where I would push back, I guess, on your your overall sentiment. Um, is that I agree that um people should strive to be individually exceptional. I I this idea some people do believe this. Most of the leftists that I know don't. I'm happy to say that most of the leftists and myself agree that while. Um, while it's very important to organize collectively and fight for people on a social front rather than doing this hyper-atomized individualistic rhetoric, at the same time, individual exceptionalism is very valuable. I mean, God, you know, do you, like, we don't want to live in a world where everyone's just meeting the, the, you know, the moderate, the bar, you know, where everyone's just trying to cross the foot-high, um, you know, jumping bar. Um, we want people to try to be exceptional. And this is my argument to you. It's that I think the environment that best facilitates the production of exceptional individuals, um, whether they want to get into underwater basket weaving or, or you know, corporate finance, I don't know, is a uh, worker cooperative model, um, is one in which everyone collectively owns whatever firm it is they work for. And the reason for that is because I am, to borrow a quote, perhaps haphazardly, less concerned with the intricacies of Einstein's brain than I am with the near-guaranteed knowledge that hundreds of people as intelligent as him have lived and died in fields and factories. That's what concerns me more than anything. It's the knowledge that there are incredible people out there who, if they had just been given more of a shot, maybe, for example, a more equitable living circumstances, better education, or collective control of the means of production, a little bit of democratic control over where they work, they could have become magical. But they can't because there are so many systems of, of governance, of free market in our society that conspire, you know, to, to borrow the phrase, to keep them and many people like them in the dirt. That is my argument to you, that such a society would actually produce these these uh, tremendous people uh, in greater quantities than what we see now. Well, I did want to, I don't want to play Mr. Gotcha game, but I guess I do in a little way because you did use the phrase, uh, some people are phenomenally productive which actually goes back to my very first point uh, that, that you seem to not like too much, but uh, I guess we kind of close the circle on that. But here's what I would say about this. And, and you, you have, let's, let's say your channel, right? Your channel is a means of production, right? I mean, you, you have uh, your, your webcam or your camera, you have a microphone, or you have your technology, you have software, computer, hardware, all that kind of stuff, right? We all know this, like it looks simple, but it's a whole house of cards sometimes, just getting this crap to work sometimes. So you have, you, you are a monopolist owner of a means of production called the Vosh channel. And uh, you know, I just, just out of curiosity, cause I'm always, I'm always like, I wanna see theories in practice. I wanna see theories in practice. And so, I had a look through your channel. Not again, it's not a gotcha thing. I'm genuinely curious. And you seem to be the host of every show. And so I'm kind of curious why the people who work with you don't get to host your show. In other words, why don't you take your channel 
and do what you suggest is the best thing to do. Have other people host your channel, uh, share your profits with them, get them involved, rather than paying them in this cold Marxist wage laborer, dry calculations of mutual utility stuff. Why don't you put your theories in, into practice? And again, I'm not saying this like, well, what are you hypocrite? I'm just, I'm curious why you don't put your theories into practice and create a worker-run, worker-owned, worker-controlled factory called the Bosch Channel because you seem to hold a monopoly on the microphone and I'm not, you're not sharing it with, with the workers. And I'm just wondering why. Yeah, I do think there are reasonable thresholds of of um, worker participation behind which it's not reasonably expected that you should adopt a cooperative model. Um, for 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 my case, an example, I probably do about like ninety five percent of the work to keep the channel afloat. Obviously, I mean it's, it's my but channel. But you wouldn't if you let other people host, right? Well, that is true. I could spread the work around more, but the main reason why I think the co op model is essential, and you know, broadly speaking, is because um, it is a solution to this very particular type of wage exploitation that we see in the traditionally run firm. And that's not a model. But, sorry, but that's that's what you were talking about with the people you pay. Why don't you invite them in to collectively own your channel rather than pay them? If the wage paying is exploitive, why don't you? I mean, this is what you think is the good and you certainly nobody's going to stop you from doing it. And that's why I guess I'm curious why you're not doing it. Yeah, because I do not think that um, the the uh, uh, exploitation model is descriptive when we're talking about people who aren't expected to supply consistent wage labor um, to whatever firm it is they participate in. So just because a person, for example, like I might shoot them a message on Discord like once or twice a month or something and be like, hey, can you cut down this video from the DNC debates? I'll give you 200 to $300. Just because they have that level of engagement. While I do agree there is a fundamental level of inequality in the relationship between us in that bargaining system, I don't believe that type of exploitation is one which should be ameliorated with a worker-owned collective. Now, I will say, and that that right, is so just a product- for other people, not for you, right? Well, no, this, the, I, I mean, I hardly think the way I run my channel is in any way comparable to like a business. But um, but I will say this, no, I do think- Why is it not, sorry, why is it not a business? Well, I mean, for one, I don't, like, I literally don't have a business. I don't have an LLC. Like, I just, I make contract money from YouTube and from direct donations, and then I redirect some of that. You produce the product, and you gain profits from that product, and uh, it's, I assume you pay taxes, and you file, and I mean, just because you don't Haven't have yet, an LLC but I'm sure I'll get doesn't to it. mean that it's not a business, is it? Uh, well, I mean, it's legally not a business. I'm a contractor of YouTube. Um, that would be no, like... No, I get that. But it's a business. Well, Come on. I mean, well, you, you, you're putting out a product and you're making in, money. In a, in a colloquial... If, if this collective way to go is the way to go, I would expect... Like, I was really... I went to your channel and I'm like, wow, I've... Because there's a lot of up-and-coming YouTubers that would really like to get access to your, like, 60,000-odd subscribers. And I'm just curious why you don't share your means of production. Because, with, because, with an, because an equivalent example would be, like, saying that a delivery boy should be in the part of a worker co-op of like a legal firm because like twice a week he brings them orange chicken, you know? Um, just because there is money exchange between those two agents and just because they provide a service to the like legal firm doesn't mean that they have a relationship on a level that um, that necessitates a worker cooperative. I will say this though, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to like skip on out of this. I do think there are people who run YouTube channels large enough that you could argue that a worker cooperative would be a viable enterprise for them. The Young Turks, for example. Um, I know recently there have been attempts for the unions to work uh, organized. There's been some drama 
on that specifically. They um, rejected the uh, union uh, organization. I, I heard that, but then I heard they had just like, they want like a private meeting before they agree to certain, I'm not sure. It's very complicated. I don't like have a set opinion on it, but whatever the case may be, um, if I agree that there are some levels of business relation that should be cooperatized, but there are some levels that are abstracted enough that they probably shouldn't. If you believe I'm being hypocritical in this case, um, that I don't like my editor, for example, they don't become part of a worker cooperative, even though I don't even have an LLC, then that would extend the reach of worker cooperatives to a point where you would have to include like delivery people and the guy who like waters the plants every Tuesday as part well, of no, the No, no, but that's no, but that results from your decision to create a monopoly over your channel, to have you as the monopolistic host over your channel. And that also does create, of course, you would probably be getting 95% of the profits of your business, right? Um, presently, I'm probably getting in the ballpark of 80, but yeah. Okay, so so you get 80% of the profits of your business, and so you make far more than the people you pay, and uh, it is, I assume, a full-time gig given the number of videos you put out. I assume this is your thing, right? I, yeah, I, you have a... I don't have much other, not much free time these days. I think okay, so, that so, the power so and wealth thing, I receive... So you have a monopoly over the means of production of your channel. You take 80% of the profits and you don't have any ownership share with anyone who works for you. I mean, and that's not actually, I mean, when I work with people, I generally will pay them a percentage of, of whatever comes in from, from the channel. I'm actually, I guess, much more of a worker cooperative guy than, than you are. But if it's an efficient business model, you can say, well, I'm not big enough. But if it's an efficient business model and the Young Turks should do it and you shouldn't, isn't that the best way to get to be the size of the Young Turks? And if you haven't done it, I guess, but you're recommending it to other people, you say, well, I'm too small, but isn't that how you get bigger? I don't, I do not believe that privately, uh, that, that individual YouTube channels where 90% of the work is done by one individual who could be doing 100% of the work if they just wanted to spend less time playing video games and actually knuckle down and do the editing themselves are the appropriate business model um, for um, to apply a worker cooperative standard. I've never heard anyone argue in favor of that. It should be noted, though, that while the intricacies of applying worker cooperative business models are incredibly complicated, and, and there's a whole range of nuanced discussion there, whether or not that that fuzzy line would include where I am presently, which I've, I've never heard anyone say like in no, good faith that it is. No, but wouldn't it be cool to, uh, to, to take your theory for a spin? I mean, you, listen, you I, could I, but put I a don't... message out here saying, listen, I would want you're... businesses cooperative. Hang on, hang on. I'm just, I'm just curious, right? I'm not trying to get you. I'm just, I'm genuinely curious. But I mean, if you were to say out there, listen, if you want access to my means of production, you're a, you're a struggling, disadvantaged, maybe a minority YouTuber. Uh, I'm happy to turn over my means of production to you and you can take the microphone once a week and, and I'll pay you a percentage of, of the donations and because you've got 80% of, of, of the money goes to you, right? So you've got some stuff to spread around and it would be a great way for you to open up your channel to a multiplicity of voices and to not have this monopoly production of the means, uh, mon monopoly control over the means of production. And it would mean, of course, you'd have less uh, work to do and so on. And it just, it would be a very cool thing for you to do because I'll tell you this, I mean, uh, I've, you know, one of the reasons I'm so keen on the free market is, you know, I got my first job when I was 10, you know, everyone's like, oh, child labor is bad. It's like, no, 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 child labor was essential for me uh, to survive. I've been paying my own bills since I was 15 years old for a variety of reasons that are both comical and tragic. But um, uh, so I've sort of been in the free market uh, from, from the very beginning. I'm not saying you haven't been or anything like that, but uh, 
um, having been an entrepreneur, having you know built a company, gone through all of that, you know, from from like two guys in a room to to being going public and all, it's a big deal, right? And then having been an entrepreneur in this space for like 15 years now and all that excitement, I've really, I really feel like I've kind of lived it. And and when you've lived it, you get a kind of um, oomph or 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 bedrock to your perspective uh, because it's sort of like if you're looking at a tree and someone tells you it's not a tree, uh, it's, you know, okay, well, I don't even know what to say other than it's a tree <laughs> as I'm looking at it. And the reason I'm suggesting this, just being annoying older guy, it, you know, I know it's annoying and it may be pure nonsense, but uh, what I would say, Vash, is you want to take your theories out of the books, out of the library and put them into practice, right? So if you think that, uh, you know, worker sharing is better, find a way to implement that in your business. I absolutely guarantee you can. And, you know, we can talk offline if you want help on that. Um, if you want, if you say, well, we should, you know, help the less fortunate, then open up your channel to other people to to do shows there and give them a voice uh, there, not just through debating, because debating, you have to usually have a certain size and all that kind of stuff. And really open up your control over the means of production to the less fortunate. And then you'll see how it plays out. Maybe it'll be so absolutely fantastic. If I, if I may uh, and, and work out really well, maybe there'll be things that are challenges. And I'll have to. If it does work out, you'll soon. end up with a really powerful oomph saying, hey, you know, this isn't just theory, man. I've, I've lived it and I've done so, it. And, and here's what I got. A few things to clarify. And I'll have to conclude on this because I have to go because I'm also debating destiny. Um, immediately after this, and I, I'm great at scheduling. So to clarify, first of all, I while it would be great for me to open my heart up and just let every person with um, with with a need to participate in my channel, that has nothing to do with the fundamental principles of worker cooperatives. Worker cooperatives mean that everyone who is a employee of a given firm collectively owns that. I do not have employees, and there is a big difference between an employer and a contractor. Uh, I have never heard a person advocate that like an individual YouTube channel should be subjected to an economic model, which is clearly intended for traditional firms with traditional employee relationships. But I am happy to say there's nothing theoretical about what I'm advocating here. Literally millions Millions of people across the world are employed in worker cooperatives. Uh, there is a great deal of, actually, I'm going to be honest, there's, there could be more research done on them. But the limited research that exists on them seems to speak very positively of their general level of productivity, worker satisfaction, and a bunch of other factors like ability to withstand price shocks and economic downturns that exceeds traditionally owned, um, you know, authoritarian firms. So whatever I choose to do with my channel uh, in the new future, I sincerely appreciate your uh, uh, your offer of, of advice and counsel. But um, it is, it is in, in fact, the traditional firm I am most interested in seeing uh, uh, be made a worker co-op. Um, I have to head in, uh, in in like in like two minutes. So moderator, would you like to impose some sort of ending state on this discussion? Uh, yeah, before we do, um, I just want to make sure, uh, Vosh, you, uh, you said that's going to be on DLive, right? Yeah, I'll stay where I am currently. I'm just DLive slash the real Vosh because someone took Vosh before I got Vosh. <laughs> okay so i'll post that after this and stefan i'll post your uh, youtube channel again but um i guess just before i wrap up uh stefan you want to have the the final word here no not really i mean if, okay. if vash has to go um he's probably got me i know he's got more hair, hair to wash than i do so uh, if vash has to go that's fine i do appreciate the conversation uh i know he's got to go but listen i'm i'm real happy to i booked a little bit more time and, uh, you know, I had my granola bar before we started, so I'm ready to go, baby. But uh, if you if we have uh, people in the audience who want to 
ask questions or, or make comments, I would be happy to stay for a little bit longer and, um, and deal with, with any of those if people are interested. Uh, and again, I really do thank you, the, the mod, and, and Vosh for taking the time. This is, uh, this is my life, man. I used to go to clubs, I used to dance all night, and now there's nothing more fun than a debate uh, on a... Uh, uh, on a uh, Sunday, is it Sunday night? I've lost actually. <laughs> I don't know. When you work online, uh, who even knows? Um, uh, yeah, Sunday night. That's you know, I guess that not that many clubs open on a Sunday night. But uh, yeah, I used to get ringing in my ears all day from listening to Depeche Mode all night. Now I love debating exploitation and colonialism. <laughs> so I just want to thank everyone who dropped by and and Vosh and the moderator for setting it up. Yeah, likewise, right. if I may. Just sorry, probably Tim Blue Politics. Thank you so much for hosting, Stefan. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate it. Please have a phenomenal day. Um, and, uh, uh, I know, I don't know the specifics. I don't know if there's some drama about it, but, um, you, you should, uh, uh, debate destiny sometime. I know he's super unprofessional in emails or whatever, but he's, uh, he's, uh, he's a feisty, he's a feisty lad. Um, and he's usually a good time to talk to up to you, of course, but I appreciate the recommendation. All right. Have a good one. All right. So thanks both of you guys. Uh, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate both of you guys coming out. And I also appreciate both of you guys uh, keeping it pretty tame. I know there's a few points I could tell you guys were holding back. And I appreciate this was, uh, honestly, I think it was uh, quite productive and it was good. Um, this is a great discussion. So uh, we've got a little bit of extra time here. So peace out. Um, have a good one, Vash. All right. I know a lot of you wanted that to turn into a debate about Nazis. I think I fucking crushed him. I think I fucking crushed him. Oh, that was good. Oh, I thought I thought I nailed that. I was so patient. I was so patient. I was so calm the entire time. I think I nailed that discussion.